Well, good morning, Four Corners. It is always a joy to gather and worship the Lord together and sing these wondrous songs and to sit under the teaching of God's Word. This is the instruction portion of our service, and so uh, we really do see this as instruction, not entertainment, and that's the case with all of our, our services, that the songs are meant to be vertical to the Lord and, of course, instructing us horizontally in the faith as we read and sing and meditate on these words. And then we sit under the teaching of God's Word, believing that the Scriptures are God's means, as Paul tells Timothy, for making us wise uh, in salvation through faith in Christ Jesus and in equipping us for every good work. And so we believe that all of Scripture is uh, efficacious and sufficient, and that Scripture is what we really need to live the Christian life. That there is no substitute food for us besides Scripture. And before we jump in this morning, though, I just want to make one quick announcement and, and give an encouragement about our student ministry. So it will start back up uh, next Sunday, but there will be an event the night before. And I won't get into the details of these, but you'll see them there on your bulletin. So let me just direct you there. August the 24th, uh, this is grade 6 to 12th, and then you'll see uh, the, next, the next morning is when they'll start the discussion from 9 to 10. So let me just encourage you, if you have teenagers here and you have, for whatever reason, not been bringing them along to participate in this, let me just encourage you to do that. Uh, if, if all of the folks we have here would do that, I think we would have a, a, a fairly good-sized group of people who could relate to one another as they uh, seek to understand the faith more or seek to live out their faith at school. So just um, please do participate in that. So we've been working our way through Genesis for a while as a church. That's the series we're in. We go expositionally through books of the Bible or through chunks of books like the Sermon on the Mount we did before Genesis. And for a while now, we have been in the book of Genesis. And today we come to another story in this book that is hard to read. Pretty hard reading. It is similar in this way to the accounts of Sodom and Gomorrah, and to the account of Lot's daughters. You remember those stories and how difficult those were to read and think through. It is a challenging story to encounter and to process. Today's narrative is one of rape and massacre. These are words, rape and massacre, these are words of horror, An unimaginable scene of grief, rage, and gore. That's what we have before us this morning in Genesis chapter 34. So if you would please go there. Of course, I am always aware that we have kids of varying ages among us as I was aware when we did our, our, when we taught on Sodom and Gomorrah and also following that on the story of Lot, uh, Lot's daughters. So uh, one of the things we did this morning is we sent out uh, earlier this morning uh, just a note to parents letting you know we were coming up to one of these hard passages and that you could use your own discretion as to whether or not to keep your kids in here or not. And so kids are always welcome. I always preach with children in mind, recognizing that, uh, that children may be among us of very young ages. And, uh, but of course, we have to deal with the issue before us. But how we deal with that, the words we use to describe these things should be chosen wisely. So uh, just uh, letting you all know that 
if, if at this time you would like to, to do that, you, you can send your children back to the uh, children's area. So what is this story about? Before we even get into it, the ESV editors, they put their a title for us at the top. That's not part of the scriptures themselves. That's just a title that the translators and editors of this particular translation, English translation, have put there. Uh, what they have put there before us is uh, the defiling of Dinah, that this is the, the defile or Dina, Dinah, Dina, however you are used to pronouncing that, but that this is the defiling of Dina, Jacob's daughter. And yes, we'll see that this is the catalyst for everything that happens in this chapter. And it is the issue that pervades the chapter. So yes, this is key to understanding what's going on in this chapter. However, we know from Genesis 49, which Craig read earlier, that the lasting significance of this story, if we're thinking in terms of how uh, the readers of this, of this story would have reflected on it or should have reflected on it, we know that the lasting significance of this story has to do with Jacob's sons, with the wicked act of Simeon and Levi in particular. So just as it could be called the defiling of Dina, it could also be called uh, the massacre by the sons of Jacob or something like that. So is this story about Dina or Jacob's sons? Well, in one respect, the answer is both. But in another respect, the answer is neither. In one respect, this is not about Dina and this is not about Jacob's sons. The story is about Jacob. Jacob has been guided for well over 20 years by God's promises and protection. We've been following that. We've been reading about that for several chapters now. God has blessed him with a large family and protected him from danger. We've seen God's protective hand over Jacob's life when he was in Laban's house in Mesopotamia. And we've seen God's protection of Jacob recently with his brother Esau. Remember his brother had wanted to kill him early on. It's been 20 years. God has worked in Esau's heart. And now Jacob goes out to meet Esau and Esau embraces him. And there's just nothing but peace, nothing but tenderness, nothing but warmth, all the work of the Lord. So God has been with Jacob in uh, with respect to Laban and now with Esau, we've seen his protective hand. And as we read last week, God has brought Jacob back to the land. This is hugely important. If you've been coming along now for, for a while, you see the importance of the land. We saw the importance of the land promises with Abraham and the land promises with Isaac. And we saw that with Jacob. This is central to God's promises to the patriarchs to build a nation through them and their offspring. God has brought Jacob back to the land. You'll remember in chapter 28, verse 15, we read this. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever, wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. That's the land of Canaan. Jacob's on his way. He's leaving the land and God promises him that he will bring him back. And he says, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And so fast forward from that promise, chapter 28, verse 15, fast forward from that promise to what we read last week, chapter 33, verse 18. And see this, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. 
So you're meant to, and if you read that quickly, if you read all of those chapters together, you would feel the weight of that, that what God had specifically promised in chapter 28, that he would bring Jacob back. He's done that now at the end of chapter 33. So God has brought him back to the land. So here he is. In the land of promise, Jacob here positioned in the land God promised him. He would put him in after decades of trials and dangers. God has brought him back to the land. The promise is marching forward. But, but then we come to this story. This is not what you would expect at this juncture. I mean, God has just brought Jacob out of Laban's house and God has come to Laban in a dream and said, don't, basically don't harm Jacob, don't prevent him. And then God has worked in Esau. God has wrestled with Jacob, brought peace to his life, settled him in the land. And then you come to chapter 34 and you're just kind of blown away. What do we do with this? In various ways, it offers a challenge or an obstacle to the advancement of God's plan. We're meant to feel that. We're meant to feel the weight of the fact that God's plan is moving along. And all of a sudden now we hit chapter 34 and there's this challenge to it all. There's this obstacle right in the way. Obstacle to the advancement of God's plan to the fulfillment of God's plan. Promises. And ultimately, we know where this is going. God's plan from the beginning, when he first called Abraham out of Ur or Abram out of Ur, that God has the intention of bringing about a person who will crush the head of the serpent. And that person will be the king. That person will bring blessing, the kind of blessing we find in Eden. Blessing to all the families of the earth. God's plan from the beginning is Christ. Christ is the plan of Scripture. The Bible is one unified narrative about Christ. Everything is pointing to Christ. And so if we are to say that at this point in chapter 34, there seems to be a challenge to the plan or an obstacle to the plan, that plan is Christ. So this is significant for us. It's cosmically significant. It's significant across space and time that this plan hits this point of obstacle. Will everything fall apart? Or will God remain faithful and capable? Think about that. Will everything fall apart? Or will God remain faithful and capable, able to move his plan along? This is the question that we are forced to ask in times of crisis or darkness like chapter 34. Now, you probably have never come up against, I mean, may, maybe, honestly, maybe you have, especially as we look at the beginning of the narrative, uh, come up against a crisis or a darkness like what we find in chapter 34. But either way, I think we are to take from this that, that we do come up into against moments of crisis or darkness. And the question that stands in front of us when we come into those moments is this. Will everything fall apart or will God remain faithful and capable? That's the question in every trial, isn't it? We either complain and get discouraged and get defeated and give up 
or we trust in the Lord's faithfulness. And what a passage like today in the flow of the narrative of Genesis is meant to do is to encourage us to say, even in the darkest darkness, God can get us through this. God is faithful. God is powerful. God will do it. He will keep me. He will answer Jesus' prayer in John 17. He will bring us to see his glory where he is, to dwell with him and see his glory. That's coming. That's coming for every Christian. And it's in moments of darkness that we need to be reminded. Just as God's plan to bring the Christ, to build a nation and bring the Christ, is not going to be upset by chapter 34, nothing that comes in our lives will upset God's plan to bring us to Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. So I have entitled the sermon for today, Trouble in the Land. That's what we have here. Jacob's in the land, but boom, immediately after he's in the land, he runs into catastrophic trouble. And that's what we find in this chapter. So if you will, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is Genesis chapter 34, verses 1 to 31. Trouble in the land. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. And the only way of salvation, the only means of salvation for those who are not his people. Verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, The prince of the land saw her. He seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman, spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. That's a healthy family. Verse 5, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry. Because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then... We will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become 
one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, These men are at peace with us. Some irony there. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised all who went out of the gate of, the, of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dina out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city. Because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray. Ask for the Lord's help as we go through his word. This is, uh, we need his help on every passage, obviously, but this is particularly difficult to take in. To digest. So let's pray and ask that the Lord would show us what's here. Father, thank you for your word. We want to hear from you today as we hear from your word. But Lord, we know that your spirit takes the word and illuminates it each for each of us specifically and applies it to our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that that would happen in each of our lives today, that we would listen. Father, protect us, we ask, from distraction, from thoughts about other things. Lord, we know we are tempted to be elsewhere. Lord, would we be here? Would we follow the logic of this text? Would we follow the logic of this sermon? Lord, would, would there be clarity? And Lord, would we see your grace and your power in the midst of such human depravity, such evil, such fallenness, And Father, would the weight of that be on each of us as we consider our own depravity, our own fallenness, and your grace towards us in Christ. Father, we thank you for him, the seed, the redeemer, the creator, the sustainer, the one who is our brother and our God, our Lord, our master, our savior, our friend, Jesus Christ, your son. We praise you for him. We pray that he would be elevated through a text like this, even through a text like this, that our minds would be drawn to Christ. 
We thank you for him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So we can trace this narrative, I think, this morning with three words just to help us to work through uh, the, the narrative that we have here. So three words. You'll find these in your bulletin. Violation, negotiation, and annihilation. We see as the story unfolds, these are sort of the three parts of this narrative. So let's look first at violation. And in order to do that, I want to read again verses 1 to 8 so that we have those clearly in view for us. So verses 1 to 8. Now, Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dina, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. There are, I think, three words that we could use to summarize this section of the narrative. And I'll do this for each of the sections, not merely to multiply points for you, but because it helps us to grab a hold of this narrative. It helps us, these are like points are like, sermon points are like little handles. They help us to grab hold of it and to climb up it or to go down into it, whatever uh, analogy you want to use. At least that's, what, that's what, how, how my mind works. But there are three words that we could use to summarize this section of the narrative or to get into it. And the three words are these, rape, obsession, and anger. You can write those down if you're taking notes. Rape, obsession, and anger as we think about this violation. So first, the rape. We are told at the end of chapter 33 that Jacob has settled his tents before the city of Shechem and has purchased a small portion of land from the Hivite people living there. So he, he's dwelling there among these Canaanite peoples. And you can go back to chapter 10 of Genesis when the, the nations are dispersing and you can see that the Hivites are a particular, dis, they're descendants of Canaan. They're a type of Canaanite. Like the Jebusites or the Perizzites, all these other ones that we've heard of. So these are the Hivites. These are squarely Canaanites. We've seen non-Canaanites living in the land like Philistines and so forth. These are squarely Canaanite people, the Hivites. And now, out of curiosity or a desire to socialize, Dina, Jacob's daughter, ventures out from the location and protection of her family. Now, people debate what, what's going on here. Is there some culpability with Dina? And I think it's, we're probably moving in a wrong direction to uh, start assigning culpability to Dina in, a, in a, a narrative in which she is raped. I think that would probably be foolish in a wrong direction given what we have here. We don't have enough to, 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 to ascertain that. But what we do have here is, are some question marks. Why is it that this young woman, and her age is unclear, but why is it that this young woman has ventured away from the family, from the protection of her father and her brothers, and she's just out kind of seeking some social life with the ladies of the land? just kind of leaves a question mark in our minds, but that's what's happening. The text just tells us that's what's going on. 
The result, of course, is horrific. The son of the ruler of the land. Not just some guy over on the side, some man she happens to run into, but the prince of the people. The son of the ruler of the land. A man named Shechem saw her, verse 2 says, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. This word for humiliated is a little difficult to nail down. It can be translated in various ways, including to afflict or oppress or to humble, to defile, and also in several places, and even in some English translations here, to rape. The word to rape. And it is the latter that seems to be in view here. And commentators debate this as to what, has she just been defiled as a virgin or has she been raped? And it does seem here to be a, a forceful encounter. He takes her forcefully and does with her what he pleases. He steals away her virginity. He violates her. And this, I think, just as we pause, reminds us of the wickedness of a fallen world. You probably don't have to go far to hear of someone who has been raped. You probably know someone or have met someone or maybe you yourself. This has happened to you. It shows the wickedness of a fallen world. We saw it with Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't just the homosexuality, though it most certainly was the homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah. But it was also the, the, the desire to destroy, the desire to get through the door and rape these men. We saw this kind of thinking there. And even with Lamech at the very beginning of Genesis, as he takes to himself two wives forcefully, sort of the origins of polygamy. It reminds us, it gives us a glimpse as we're, we've been following the people of God. We've been under a tent with Jacob and his family. And it reminds us what's going on out there in the world. It reminds us we've just been living in the ancient world with this one ancient people. We've definitely seen some sin and some folly. And we're going to see some serious sin here in this passage for sure. But this, this account of a rape, right as they've come into the land, they're living there in the land, reminds us what the world is like out there. The flood didn't destroy sin. It's going on all over the place. It reminds us also of the destructive power of lust. What lust, particularly here, I think we should reflect what lust in a man has the power to do in terms of taking over the mind of a man and carrying out injustice towards other people. The injustice even of looking at the things that we should not look at, of objectifying and really mentally exploiting women through things that we may think are just commonplace among men today. How lust in the heart of a man can conquer a man. And we see this being reflected in the case of Esau, his lust there for food, which is a bit different. But the writer of Hebrews says that this has application to sexual immorality. That what what we see with Esau, that kind, of, that kind of lack of control over self leads to all kinds of evil. Take note, brother, 
if you are participating in sexual immorality and thinking it is okay, it won't really do much harm. So we see here the rape. But secondly, under this first point, we see the obsession. One might expect Shechem to try to cover up his deed or at least just walk away. You know, what does Shechem do after he does this violating to Dina? We might expect him to try to cover it up or walk away, but that's not what happens at all here. It's a bit surprising. Instead, he becomes obsessed with this woman. He becomes infatuated, entirely consumed with Dina. Verse 3, he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So he asks his father Hamor, the ruler of the land, to help get her as his wife. I want her. And of course, we know throughout history when powerful men want something, unfortunately, in a fallen world, they get it. It's sad. I want her, Dad. Get her for me. She's just an object of his infatuation. He's obsessed. So, Hamor, in turn, goes out to discuss the matter with Jacob. Here we just see a passive father. Oh, oh, okay, son. And he goes out to do what he can to please his son. Meanwhile, so now we come to the anger. So we see the rape, we see the obsession. Now we come to the anger. Meanwhile, as the Hivite father and son are scheming, Jacob finds out about what happened to his daughter. And Jacob's response in this situation is a little puzzling. And commentators debate over what's going on in Jacob's mind. What, what, why does he respond with this silence? Now, we know that he waits to tell his sons. He's not going to tell his sons while, while they're out in the field. So he's going to wait to tell his sons. But we don't get any kind of issue rising up in Jacob. We don't see any kind of emotional response or, or hurt or, or grief or sorrow or anger or anything. He's, it's just kind of silence as far as Jacob is concerned. And this is either meant to put forward, and it's a bit unclear, it's either meant to put forward his wise reserve, in contrast to his sons, or neglectful indifference regarding Leah's daughter. Remember, Dina is Leah's kid. Now, do you remember when they put the, Jacob put all of the family out there as he was approaching Esau and he went before and he's bowing and he's bowing and he's bowing and the family's coming? Well, he's got the most expendable people in the front and the most precious people in the back and that's going to be Joseph and Rachel. We're going to see how that becomes a problem later in the narrative. But could it be that this is an outworking of his disregard of Leah? Remember, she's she's having all of these babies and she's saying, maybe now Jacob will love me. Maybe now he'll treasure me. Oh, it's just Leah's daughter. It's unclear whether this is a wise reserve or a neglectful indifference. But this is what we have here. Jacob's response just puzzles us. The response of the sons is not ambiguous. It is very, very clear. Dina's brothers, they respond very differently. Verse 7, the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. So what do we make of the son's response? We know that it's this rage and this anger, as we would expect. I don't have a sister, but I do have a daughter. 
I do have a mother, I do have a wife, and we all have women in our lives, and I think we can relate to very angry. I, I can't imagine any man who would not respond if this happened to his sister as anything other than being very angry. But what do we make of this response? It seems that it has less to do, and this is interesting about the son's character, it seems that it has less to do with the welfare of Dina and more to do with the honor of the family. Notice the language they use. It's not how could they do this to our precious sister. Now, of course, we're not expecting to verbatim that, but something along those lines. That's not the kind of language that's used. The language that's used is the, the language of honor of the family. Shechem has rendered the daughter of their people defiled. He has done an injustice to the people. He's done an injustice to the family. He's dishonored them. He's disrespected them. This is really where they're camping. This is really what fuels their anger. That's not to say they don't care about their sister, but this seems to be at least at the front. Their response is intense anger. This raises a question for us. What do you do with your anger? I mean, we can't read a passage like this without reflecting on lust, which we did with Shechem. But we also can't read a passage like this without reflecting on the nature of anger. That anger is one of those things that begins in the heart and then it explodes out into every area of life. They became very angry, but what did they, what did they do with their anger? We know that by the time you get to the end of the chapter, what they did with their anger is create a puddle of blood everywhere. That's what their anger led to. What do you do with yours? If fueled or unchecked, it has the potential for great destruction. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26 to 27 about anger. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do you remember, do you remember Jesus' anger in the temple as he's driving out the money changers? He was angry, really, really angry. Anger is not intrinsically sinful. We should be angered at injustices in the world. We should be angered when injustices are done to those we love. But just because we are angry does not mean we have to sin in, in what we think in our hearts towards our neighbor and in what we do. And that's why Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And then he says this, and give no opportunity to the devil. What happened in Genesis chapter 34 is a massive throwing open of the door to the devil into the hearts of Simeon and Levi in particular, as we'll read later. Opening the door, giving opportunity to the devil to exploit the anger in our hearts to bloody, murderous ends. That's where slander comes from. That's where envy comes from. That's where uh, strong, harsh criticism comes from. That's where divisiveness in churches comes from. It's a throwing open the door to Satan. And he comes in and he does what he pleases and he produces the ends that we see all around us. Maybe not as destructive as this, but destructive nonetheless. Proverbs 14, 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has Hasty temper exalts folly. We can't go through this narrative without reflecting on the explosive power of anger in the heart of a person. 
So we see the violation, but now we come to the negotiation. Number two, the negotiation. Look at verses 8 to 24. This is the, the bulk of the narrative. Verses 8 to 24. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say and, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dina. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. So here we see the negotiation, the center of the narrative, and I think we can summarize these verses with three words as well. And here they are, the proposal, the condition, and the agreement. Just to kind of run through verses 8 to 24, the proposal, the condition, and the agreement. So first, the proposal. Without any sense of sorrow or regret. This is, this is I mean, in some ways, it's, it's just totally shocking. Without any sense of sorrow or regret. Without any recognition that an injustice has been done. With utter, complete audacity, Hamor asks Jacob and his sons to give Dina to his son Shechem. No apology. No, man, I hate the way this has gone down. But could we still work something out? Not even that. Just, let's, let's make this pact. Let's make this agreement. It's just another instance of how we see throughout history that women have been oppressed in a fallen world. Just pushed around, thrown around, trampled on. And you could find this time after time again throughout history. This is part and parcel of living in a fallen, broken world. This is, if you will, what what Adam himself brought upon Eve and all the descendants of Eve. In disobeying the Lord, we see this wickedness throughout societies even today. This bold request 
comes with a proposal to intermarry and become as one people. You give us your wives and we'll take yours, dwell here and trade here in this land. We'll just be all one big happy family. Just give me her. That's what he wants. And then Shechem pipes in and says in verse 12, Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. I'll pay you whatever you want. Just give her to me. So Shechem has now defiled Dina, and now he treats her like a commodity to be purchased. He's defiled her. He's made no apology, as if an apology would even matter. And now he treats her as a mere commodity, even a political pawn. And we learn later that she is even being held in his home. Because remember, the sons, they get her from that home. She's in his house. He's defiled her, and now he's treating her as a a product, nothing, an object. This is a troubling and fearful situation for this family for a number of reasons. Now, think about this. What, what What is going on at this moment, at this juncture? This is trouble in the land for sure. And we can only imagine what's going on in Jacob's mind. I mean, this is serious. If we could pull back the veil as we've done before and get into Jacob's head and see what he's thinking and see his prayers. I'm sure there's all sorts of things going on. We don't get that with Joseph later either. We don't get into Jacob's heart much beyond what we've seen so far into the future. But I'm sure this is, in Jacob's mind, equally as problematic as a crisis he faced when he came to Esau. And here's why. What if they say no? So what if Jacob and his sons say, no, not giving you Dina, and then they rebuke them for doing this? What will the Hivites do to Dina? She's in his house. He is entirely captivated by her. Will he take her and say, Dina, it's time to go home. It's time to go home. No, we get no impression that that's going to happen. And even more, what will these Hivites do to Jacob and his family now if they say no? No. What if they say yes? This would mean a few things. One, it would mean assimilation. Here God has been doing all of this great and wondrous work providentially to make a people. To make a people. A distinct people. And to now assimilate with this wicked bunch of people. To just bleed right in together and become one people with these Canaanites. Abraham told, God told Abraham that the Canaanites would be destroyed at some point. He hinted at that. That the land does not belong to the Canaanites from God's eyes. It belongs to Israel. It belongs to Abraham and his descendants. This would be assimilation. They would lose their status as a people. It would also mean subjugation. Verse 20, 23, you see what's in the heart of Hamor and Shechem. They say this, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Come on, guys, go ahead and do this because we're going to take everything they have. They'll be subjugated. They'll become one people with this people and they'll be second-class citizens. All that God's been doing, obliterated. Pollution, their worship of the Lord would be entirely polluted. We see this later in Judges chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. Listen to this. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, 
and the Jebusites, and their daughters took and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Do you see that? That happens later. That's what would have happened. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So we see what would happen if they did this at this juncture. Everything we've been reading since Genesis chapter 12 destroyed. Of course, we know it wouldn't have been destroyed because of the Lord. But it would have been compromised. This is the proposal. So we see first the proposal. Secondly, we see the condition. Under negotiation, we've got proposal, and now we've got the condition. At this point, it is clear that the negotiation is fully underway. But it is not Jacob who speaks for the family. It is his sons. Why is Jacob not leading? Why is Jacob not negotiating? Why is he allowing his sons, these young, hot-blooded men, full of vengeance in their hearts and anger, why is he allowing his sons to push this negotiation forward? We don't know. Jacob is just presented as passive. He's just kind of there. You see that the sons have no intention of negotiating with these men. They respond deceitfully. It says, verse 13, the language, this is the language of chapter 27, verse 35. Do you remember when we saw this language last? Just kind of rewind back to Jacob, their father. And we read this in 2735, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. That's what Isaac said of Jacob. He acted deceitfully and now we have his sons here doing the same thing. And just as we pause for a moment, consider this by way of implication, this is like father, like son, right? I mean, that's what we're seeing here. As Jacob deceived, we're seeing that coming through in his sons as well. Now, of course, we, we uh, don't have a full understanding of the nature-nurture relationship when it comes to like father, like son. But what we do know is this, that the choices we make in our lives live on in the habits and choices of our children and grandchildren. We entertain folly and coddle folly in our lives. It will show up in the lives of our offspring. And we see that here. Sins perpetuated from generation to generation. Here, once again, this is a deceiver's family. So appearing to enter into a fair and honest negotiation, they lay out their one condition. They have one condition, verses 15 to 16. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves. And we will dwell with you and become one people. I want you to think about this for a moment. It is really hard to believe that Jacob would stand by... As his sons offer, knowing all that he knows, as his sons offer to assimilate with the people. And as his sons offer to cheapen circumcision. This is really incredible. Think about it. Because Jacob does not, it appears, see the deception of his sons. Because he rebukes them later. He does not, he does not know where this is headed. So, so what he's doing, it seems, is he is standing by while his sons negotiate the people away, the distinctiveness of the people, negotiate that away, and trifle with circumcision, the holy sign and mark of the covenant people of God. 
This is incredible what we're seeing. This is really disturbing. And it tells us, it suggests for us that Jacob's heart may have grown worldly. Success can easily do this to us. You think that you're strong in the Lord, you're walking with the Lord, and some success comes into your life, and then all of a sudden, you just kind of grow comfortable and padded and content in a bad way, complacent in your success, and you forget God. You just forget all about God because you have everything you want. You don't need God. You have the world. And we see here, I think, some indication that Jacob's heart has just been consumed with the world. And why has he settled in Shechem anyway? To begin with, why did he not go all the way back to Bethel? This is a, something that commentators discuss is why is he settling in this random place, Shechem? Now, this is the first place Abraham came when he entered the land. But why does Jacob camp here when Bethel, the place where God met with him, and he told him he would go back there and worship him, why doesn't he go there when it's only one day journey away? Why? We see in chapter 35, God tells him to go there. Why isn't he there already? It's unclear what's going on in Jacob's heart, but we know it's not good. Finally, on this point, we have the agreement. The agreement. Shechem is so enamored with Dina that he wastes no time in accepting this condition, carrying it out on himself and then going to all the men of the city to get them on board. And of course, I think we would imagine that this would not have been an easy sell to the men of the city. Can you imagine the, every man in the city? Hey, guys, this is what we really want you to do. Get circumcised. These are grown men. Would have been very, I can, I'm sure that their eyebrows went up and they started looking at one another going, what, what, is he serious? But that is what they go to them and discuss, them, discuss with them to do and the people agree. Hamor convinces them that it will be a lucrative thing for them in the end, that they will take hold of the people's property, that essentially all that belongs to Jacob's descendants will be theirs. And the text says that Shechem is an honored man. Isn't that terrible when the most honored man in the city is a a rapist? I mean, what does that say about these people? Just like Sodom and Gomorrah, when the most honored man here is Shechem. That's the kind of people So what is the conclusion to the negotiation? Verse 24, And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. So now what? Now we come to the climax, really, of the narrative, and that is the annihilation. We've seen the violation, the negotiation. Now finally, as we finish up this morning, we come to the annihilation. Look at verses 25 to 31 as we finish up. On the third day, when they were sore from circumcision, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure. And they killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dina out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, 
you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is a horrible scene. It really is. It is hard to imagine. It's much easier to read than it would have been to be present at. It becomes a little sanitized when we read it. But if you had been there, this is a horrific scene. I want you to see three things here. You can write these down if you'd like. The killing, the pillaging, and the endangering. That's what we have in this section. The killing, the pillaging, and the endangering. First, the killing. To put it simply, this is premeditated murder on a mass scale. That's what this is. This is mass murder premeditated. What we see here is not justice or even corresponding vengeance. This even, if you can call vengeance reasonable, this is not even reasonable vengeance. This is mass murder. This is not a fit of anger that takes the life of the guilty rapist or merely an effort to retrieve their sister from his house and get away. It's not a rescue attempt. And it is not a one-for-one, eye-for-eye, no. This is a well-thought-out, calculated plan to massacre the entire male population of a city. This is horrible. The fact that Hamor calls them a peaceful people, back in verse 21, shows that the deception was pulled off perfectly. This is treacherous. All the men are incapacitated, healing from circumcision, probably can barely move. Definitely not fight with the sword. It hasn't even crossed their minds that they may need protection from Jacob's family. This is a carefully calculated mass murder. And in this vulnerable state, they are all slaughtered by Simeon and Levi. House to house, sword blow by sword blow. This would have been a bloody mess. A horrific Scene. I want to make a quick note about authenticity of the scriptural record that we have here. I want you to remember who wrote this. Moses wrote this. Moses is a Levite, right? We find that all throughout scripture. You go, go and read the gospel of Mark. Mark, according to church tradition, was, was recorded by Mark uh, through the preaching of Peter in Rome. And, and in the gospel of Mark, what do, what's the kind of picture presented of Peter? In the Gospels as a whole, what's the kind of picture presented of the disciples? That gives us a, that's a criterion of authenticity. No one writes glorification narratives in which the main characters and heroes are not heroes at all. That's what we have here. Moses is the writer and he's a Levite and he is here describing the wickedness of his ancestor Levi. In Genesis 49, when Jacob is blessing and speaking prophetic words over his sons, he says this of Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi, verses 5 to 7. Genesis 49, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. And listen to this. This is the assessment of Scripture on these men and what they do in this chapter. For in their anger, they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, 
for it is cruel. That's what happened in Genesis 34. Fierce cruelty. So we see the killing first. Secondly, we see the pillaging. To make this scene even more horrific, after all the men are killed, the sons of Jacob profit from it by plundering the dead. You've got all these corpses lying around and they're stealing everything from them, stripping them of wealth. They take people and property as possessions. This is mass theft and enslavement by the sons of Israel, by the grandsons of Father Abraham. It is unclear to what extent the other sons of Jacob participate in this plundering. Verse 27 says the sons of Jacob. It's unclear whether this is Simeon and Levi or whether all the brothers just get in on it and they plunder. Seems to suggest the latter. And they justify this by saying that they had, def- that they had defiled their sister. That's their reason. That's their justification. And this tells us, I think, that we can always justify. This can even be justified. Do you see that in life? I mean, you, you, you read something like, certainly this can't be justified. Oh, yeah. All of our sin can be justified. Satan is a justification, not the kind we talk about with Christ. But Satan is a justification expert. He's an expert in giving us reasons why our sin is okay. Why it's not so evil after all. And we see that here. We can justify this mass murder and enslavement of little children. Look at what they did to Dina. Justification. Finally, thirdly, we see the endangering. Jacob's response in the final verses is disappointing for a number of reasons. It seems entirely pragmatic. That's the first reason. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land after everything that's happened in this family, after what happened to his daughter, after what these sons have done. That's all he can think about. This is very pragmatic. He fears that the neighboring people will hear of this and join together to attack him. So that's the first. It seems entirely pragmatic. It is weak in its rebuke of such wickedness. No mention of the evil involved. There's no rebuke of his sons. He does not chastise his sons for their evil. No word here reminds us of Eli's sons. 1 Samuel reminds us of some of David's sons. Reminds us of the folly of a father who looks to his own interests and forgets his role in fathering his sons. No no words of rebuke here. I mean, these could just be pagan peoples. There's no mention at all of the Lord and his righteousness, his morality, his intentions, creative intentions for humanity. Nothing here about any of that. Finally, it is dismissive of Dina. Which is why the sons say, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Dad, you haven't even shown any care at all about our sister. Jacob has shown no desire to rectify that. He has shown no interest in Dina in this narrative. Here we see where the family is headed. As we close, this is so important for us as Christians. Reading a story like Genesis 34 today after the coming of Christ. Here we see where the family, this holy, set-apart family is headed. It is not an intrinsically worthy family. Do you see that? 
This is not an intrinsically worthy, meritorious, righteous, good, pure, clean family. That is not the case. This highlights the fact that God's plan is moving along, not on the back of human merit. God's plan in your life does not move along on the back of human merit. It moves along on the back and basis of his power and his grace. That's exactly what we see here with these people of God. There's nothing to celebrate about these people. It's God's grace. If they are to survive as a people, if we are to be blessed in their descendant, Christ, if all the families of the world are to be blessed, then it will be God's doing alone. Not these people. Not you, not me. It will be the Lord. I think this story also gives us a realistic picture of the world. Rape on the outside, mass murder on the inside. We have Dina's curiosity, the trampling of circumcision, Jacob's indifference, and a seeming willingness on his part to assimilate with the people of the land. This is a world that needs a savior. In every corner of the world, there is the need for a savior. No one is immune from that. There will be no one in heaven who is there on their own merits. You will not be good enough for God. He will cast you in hell if you are depending on your works before God. He will judge you for every sin you've ever committed. He will judge you eternally in hell apart from Christ. There is no deed that will win his favor. There is only the righteousness of Christ given to your account so that when you stand before him, he says righteous because of Christ's finished Work. Some of us might be relying on our works. You think you're going to go to heaven because you think it's all going to work out in the end. Or maybe you just think you haven't done these things. Or maybe you've done some really good things. Without Christ, you will die and go to hell. And you will never leave that awful place. Turn to Christ today. Don't wait. Even children gathered here among us, don't wait to trust Christ. Trust him now. And receive the blessedness that comes through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your purposes through this family, through this very broken, fallen family. And even as we come to the end of Genesis and we see just all the grace and warmth surrounding the the relationship with Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. and We see the people in the land of Egypt crying out to God and yet complaining, praising God and yet complaining. And as we see all the idol worship throughout the Old Testament, and as we see the, the running and fleeing of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane and the denial of Peter, we are reminded... That we have nothing to bring to you but sin and duplicity and idolatry and blasphemy and selfishness. And so, God, we come to Christ that we might have living water. That we might have food forever. Would you feed us with Christ 
Would we be in the cleft of that rock? Would we be upon that ark? Knowing, Lord, that otherwise we will perish and the wrath of God will consume us. And we, like chaff, will be blown away. Father, may it not be for any person here right now, would they turn away from a life of selfishness and sin and trust Christ, what he did on the cross, to forgive them of all their sins and follow him. God, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.